Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are talking about a really important conversation, and yet again, another one near and dear to my heart, and that is the conservation of the eastern hemlock, Suga canadensis, which has been absolutely ravaged by the invasive woolly adelgid. My guest today is Ian Kinahan, who is very passionate and works on hemlock resistance. I'm going to let him describe what that is, but essentially it's working with genetic diversity and a subset of trees' natural ability to resist this invasive pest. This is a really important conversation, and as you're going to hear, there's strangely a lot more resistance to it than there actually should be. And it's an important reminder that conservation can happen in a vacuum or a silo, and we need multifaceted approaches to species conservation. We just don't have the luxury to think about it any other way. Before I get to that, I just want to say, please consider supporting this podcast. The best way to do that is by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's some kickbacks in there for you for supporting the show, but it quite literally helps ensure the show can keep going week after week. And of course, thank you to all of my patrons that have supported it thus far. But that is entirely enough out of me. Let's get on to my conversation. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ian Kinahan. I hope you enjoy. All right, Ian Kinahan, welcome to the podcast. I am super pumped to pick your brain today, but for those that aren't aware of your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, really appreciate you having me on. Uh, so I am an ecologist with Massachusetts Department of Conservation and Recreation in the Office of Natural Resources. And I basically, I started this job like three months ago. So <laughs> what I do is pretty new to me. But um, broadly, you know, DCR is the largest landowner in the state. And so we manage like half a million acres. Um, and, and the land is full of priority rare species habitat. So we do a lot of rare plant monitoring. Uh, we work with volunteer groups to control invasive plants um, and restore native habitat. And uh, we're initiating a pollinator diversity survey along the Charles River in Boston, which is a historically extremely disturbed um, anthropogenic landscape. Um, so that'll be kind of an interesting project. Um, and then, yeah, and then the, another broad area that I work in is coordinating with the forestry and research offices um, to lead research on eastern hemlock resistance to hemlock woolly adelgid. So nice. Yeah, it's basically my purview. <laughs> quite a bit of work there, but. What brought you to this line of work? I mean, were you a plant kid growing up or just kind of a nature nut? Like, how did you find yourself in this field? Um, it's it was it was a mix of all of that. You know, I, I was privileged to grow up on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, nice. which are you familiar with the area? Yeah, I love it. Oh, my God. Just aesthetically. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's like this dramatic pitch pine barren, you know, and so I spent a lot of my youth and stuff like just exploring those pine woodlands and that was pretty formative and I went and studied biology at UMass Amherst and I was broadly interested in anything to do with forests and nature and stuff like that and worked a few seasonal jobs after graduating from college and um, one of those was I worked as a uh, field teacher naturalist at a environmental education center in Rhode Island and we had an arborist come and give us a uh, like a tree walk through this old growth forest. 
and he taught us how to identify trees and he showed us all these cool plants and that was kind of what got me like focused like you know pretty exclusively on <laughs> plants so that was kind of cool um and then after that went to grad school um because i you know it was like having a master's degree seemed pretty essential to yeah. getting a job um and so i was looking for pretty much anything and then this grad program at uri came, university of rhode island came up looking at um doing research on interactions between eastern hemlock and hemlock willie adelgid huh. so yeah i did that program and then uh, i graduated in um, 2020 in the middle of covid <laughs> oh, which was man. a god-awful time to look for jobs <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, oh man my heart goes out to you <laughs> thanks yeah yeah I, I yeah a couple of my you know people i went to grad school with we graduated at the same time and it was just sad yeah. so but so the, you know the only job i could find was um out in oregon i uh, mm. got a job with the u.s forest service doing some assisting with some research on like high elevation conifer conservation and ecology so like subalpine fir white fir you know trees like that mm. that was kind of cool nice yeah and then uh wow sorry this is going on for a really long time but no this worries is basically the whole story and then after that i wanted to strengthen my field botany skills so i worked as a seasonal technician in shenandoah national park nice. where we did yeah we uh so we did like botanical inventories rare plant monitoring like throughout the park backcountry um and and now i'm here so <laughs> that's how it went <laughs> yeah i mean it's a journey right and i, I think it's really important for people to hear that that everyone's got a different story. Everyone's got a different way or route they took to get there. There's no real recipe, but there are certain check marks that you kind of have to hit. You know, going to grad school certainly helps, but having those seasonal positions, it may, you know, it's fun when you're young, especially when you got the energy for it. But even then, like if it seems like drudgery, if it seems like, oh man, I just want that permanent job, like it's coming. You just have to like yeah. serve the time, pay your dues, so to speak. But I'm sure you picked up a ton of great skills with all of those different positions, no matter what you were doing. Well, I tried, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would like to think that, yeah, it was definitely a smorgasbord of different experiences in ecology. And so, it, you know, I definitely learned a lot like that job in Oregon. It was cool to learn a lot, um, a lot more about like, we did a lot of work looking at, um, in addition to the fir tree work, we studied white pine blister rust oh, resistance wow. in um, in in five needle pines, and so it was kind of cool to see like you know a federal research lab's approach to breeding and evaluating hmm. pathogen resistance in trees compared to just me working in my tiny lab at University of Rhode Island working with like three trees. So that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, yeah, I mean, so there was you know that research side of it, and then at Shenandoah like. That job was like a crash course in um, field plant identification. So I learned a ton there. Nice. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, even if it's just learning what you don't like, something good comes out of those moments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, yeah, so. so it sounds like resistance has kind of been a big part of your life, whether intentional or not. And so we've had people from the Hemlock Restoration Initiative on in the past, but it's been a minute. So roughly speaking, what is going on with Eastern Hemlock, Suga canadensis? Amazing tree, one of my favorites. It is the backdrop of my childhood, having grown up in the northeastern United States. But what's going on with it, and what is an adelgid? Yeah, um, well, Eastern Hemlock, surprisingly, it's still around um, throughout its range. You know, it's this... Um, it's this foundational species, right? So it's it creates and maintains habitat for... 
other important species, um, mainly in, I think, acidic cove forests, but, you know, among other habitats as well. Um, it's basically been under attack by hemlock woolly adelgid, which is a non-native invasive sap-feeding insect mm-hmm. that was introduced from Japan, I think, in the early 1920s in Virginia. Um, and so it's a passively dispersed insect that was introduced, and it's it, it feeds exclusively on hemlock species. Um, and eastern hemlock has proven to be the most susceptible to uh, attack by adelgid. And adelgids can kill mature eastern hemlocks in as little as three years. Oh, you know, so it's pretty intense. Um, and so this, but this onslaught, you know, adelgid has been feeding on hemlocks for the last century or so, and there are still some some hemlocks that persist in adelgid devastated forests. And you know, a lot of, uh, there, a lot of people say that the jury is still out. Uh, and there's a lot of different reasons why those trees are still around. Like mm-hmm. some of its microclimate, some of it, some of its like soil conditions. You know, some of it's just trees and you know hemlocks in like northern. Wisconsin or Canada obviously have climate on their side because <laughs> right for now I guess yeah <laughs> exactly I know I should have mentioned earlier Adelgid is from I think it I think it uh, hemlock woolly Adelgid originated it's either in Japan or China I'm not totally sure but the climate oh yeah. go ahead sorry oh no I was gonna say it's definitely Asiatic yeah, yeah. and so the, it's like originant climate is not you know, it's it's not adapted to like the extreme cold temperatures of the northern North America. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's the status of hemlock. Like, it's there's still persisting trees here. They all are doing pretty poorly, um, and it's really difficult to manage adelgid. It's proven to be like pretty much unmanageable up to now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you see an infested tree, it quickly becomes obvious why i mean just in sheer numbers but also the size of the insect and then you look at where hemlock has grown or you know was grown at one point and yeah it's just it's too much land to try to get your head wrapped around let alone do something about it yeah i think there was like seven million eastern hemlocks originally throughout its range before the adultion was introduced yeah and there's you know there's a lot of there has been um, a lot of work and money put into biocontrol mm-hmm. as an approach to managing adelgid, and that's still going on because that is pretty much that has been our best approach to managing adelgids and protecting eastern hemlock at the landscape scale. Right. So, yeah. Right. So, from what I've understood, like you can treat trees. A, you got to really pick your battles there because it's not a light thing to do to the trees. And really, who's got the human power and the finances to do that over, like you said, the landscape scale? And then you have this biocontrol, which I it's like a ladybird beetle relative or something <laughs> that, you know, we've all seen what they do to aphids. And this is kind of an aphid territory. So, yeah, it's it's complicated to put it lightly. But when you see a forest, you know, I've done all of my work in the southeast. It's devastation. And, you know, if you've been around where the ash borer is, you can kind of get your head wrapped around just how bad that can really be for a foundational species. Yeah, for sure. I mean. Yeah, I was amazed when I worked in Shenandoah seeing some of the eastern hemlock communities that had been killed off by adelgid down there. I mean, the the, the devastation is off the charts, you know, like it's unbelievable. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm not like I'm def- I've never been like really an expert on biocontrol, sure. you know. But I yeah, the main the main species I guess that people are like 
flooding our forests with, and it's not a bad thing. You know, right, they've right. done a lot of research on it to make sure that it doesn't have any, you know, significant non-target impacts. But it's like lary- species of Laracobius, you know, which is like, uh, yeah, uh, actually, it's some kind of beetle. It yeah. is a beetle. I don't know if it's a ladybird beetle, but that's like the main one up to now. Sure. And so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Anyone listening that knows, chime in. I'm sure someone yeah, knows better than us. We're, but we're plant people, right? Let's, let's, yeah. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> and that's, that was, I guess that was kind of the approach that we took in grad school to like developing a, a new method for adelgid management is looking at eastern hemlock um, conservation from the plant perspective. You know, like a lot of the biocontrol proponents look at adelgid management from a predator-prey perspective. Right. Like, we want to just kill this insect, but we were trying to capitalize on, um, you know, the plant's potential for resistance to this insect. So, yeah. Right. And there's a lot of potential there, and it, t- it touches a lot of different topics, which I'm very passionate about, and one being genetic diversity. And, you know, you mentioned roughly speaking, 7 million hemlocks. That's a lot of hemlocks. And that's a lot of, you know, across its range, probably decent genetic diversity. And Mm. when it comes to resistance, to me, that's like one of the bigger things to talk about in conservation. Like, oh, well, this population's fine. Why can't we take out two thirds of the others? Well, that's genetic diversity that, you know, when an onslaught comes, when the environment changes rapidly, as it's so keen to do these days, Mm. that's genetic diversity that it's, it's really a tool in the toolkit overall right that's kind of the big picture thing of like where you come into the picture here yeah yeah exactly um yeah i mean one of the big um like reasons why people are resistant to this idea of resistance apparently is (laughs) it's like people think that uh there's no genetic capability for eastern hemlock to have resistance to adelgid because it didn't evolve with adelgid so Mm -hmm. there's no there's nothing in its like genetic makeup for that to be possible but uh, yeah i mean i was at Today, actually, I gave a presentation on uh, my thesis work at a lingering eastern hemlock specific workshop, which, on a side note, blows my mind because (laughs) during grad school, I was like banging my head against the wall trying to spread the word on like potential eastern hemlock resistance. And now there's like an actual conference on it, which was insane. Wild. (laughs) Yeah. But I gave my presentation and people like still gave me shit about it. So (laughs) anyway, dang. Yeah. I mean, you're always going to find those people. What? Okay. So let's couch it in that. Like what early days when you especially were in grad school in the thick of it, what was the resistance? I mean, why are people pushing back on a a concept, which in theory at the surface level, kind of easy to understand? Yeah. I mean, that's the The hope. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, your question is like, that's a, a deeply troubling question that I will carry to my grave. I really I don't understand why like people are so have been so anti hemlock resistance research. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of colleagues about this. Um, I've worked a lot with the um, Jonathan Rosenthal, the director of the Ecological Research Institute, hmm. who leads a lot of the hemlock resistance work now. And, um, you know, he like he and other colleagues like they, you know, they, they have various hypotheses like entomologists whose funding comes from biocontrol feel threatened by adelgid resistance as a new approach to managing hemlock woolly adelgid and i kind of get it you know like it's my bread and butter (laughs) exactly yeah um and also i think there's always been kind of like this friction between academia and some of the like forestry slash applied groups and i experienced some of that um 
you know, I work in kind of like the applied side of things now. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, one example of like resistance was to this work was um, in my second year of grad school, I was invited to give a presentation on my thesis work at uh, 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 Hemlock Woolley Adelgid Program Managers Meeting, which was basically like this arena for all of the big league, like federal and state foresters and academic scientists to come together and talk about the status of Adelgid and Hemlocks in their area and plan for the future. And so I like went and I gave my presentation and after I completed it, a couple of senior federal and state entomologists, and I can't say who they were, no worries. but they, <laughs> they, like, <laughs> they stood up and they were almost shouting at me. They were like, I have no faith in, you know, studies on two-year-old greenhouse seedlings and things like that. And, you know, I was like, I was like in my 20s. I was like, a, <laughs> I was like shaking behind the podium, right. like, oh, I'm just man. trying to get my degree. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I think that, you know, people feel threatened by it for whatever reason. But in reflecting on it, I think I would like to think that, you know, a lot of like important science doesn't happen without controversy. That's what I tell myself when I go to bed at night anyway. Yeah. And you hope like at some level it's all rooted in passion and, and giving a shit about these species. Right. And and for I can sure. understand people being apprehensive, like I'm not going to change my approach for only a couple years worth of data, but you got to start somewhere. Right. Like this stuff doesn't you don't amass 20 years worth of data overnight. It takes 20 years of repeated approach and i also understand that like conservation dollars and funding are few and far between but a one-size-fits-all strategy doesn't exist in biology i'm sorry it's just not a thing and so like we should be really open to this multifaceted approach to trying to at least understand the problem and i totally mirror your sentiments i can't tell you how many times i heard from in, in academia someone say oh yeah i'm more into the theory you applied people i don't understand like, <laughs> the, the disdain for applied science it's like and and then the, the next breath they'll go well no one understands science no one applies it. i just don't understand I'm like well because you don't know how to give people the application it has to affect their lives somehow or at least be pragmatic so exactly you've come up against i think perennial issues across the board and it just so happens to unfortunately land on an important concept in the conservation of a species severely under threat yeah yeah exactly and i mean i'm, I'm hoping that you know there seems to be like some inflated interest um, in hemlock resistance as a potential avenue for saving this tree so i'm hoping that that is sustained and i can support that in some way right. um because yeah i mean you're right like i i think too, like this should be a um, a collaborative approach. I think there are ways that we can combine biocontrol and plant resistance to maximize our approach to controlling hemlock woolly adelgid and you know saving eastern hemlocks. The the postdoc who was in our lab at University of Rhode Island, he always did a, a much better job of explaining this <laughs> than I ever could. But he would talk about how like you have to have plants in a population like in the eastern hemlock population trees that are resistant to or tolerant you know they sustain adelgid populations on their branches but mm. they don't die and so that helps draw in and maintain mm. populations of the predator laracobius nigrinus and so it's sort of this more natural system that helps you know protect hemlocks that kind of thing so Right, because you even see that in, I mean, native populations of organisms that have these boom busts. But you see that, like, for instance, I, I noticed that uh, in some areas with the emerald ash borer, you get this massive increase and then all the trees die and then the ash borer goes away for a while and everyone's like, oh, I think it's gone. And then when the next crop finally come back, it slowly builds back again. And so, yeah, 
maintaining more of a holistic sort of natural style approach to really all encompassing forms of conservation seems to me the no brainer here, but I, people get fixated, I guess. And it's just human nature. Unfortunately, it just sucks that like, again, you as a grad student just trying to graduate had oh, to yeah. feel the like vitriol of, you know, the old guard, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, um, and I kind of experienced this today during the, during the conference, presentation um i think a lot of people they expect science to be like incredibly robust and perfect <laughs> and when it's not they're like this is completely invalid yeah <laughs> at least that was some of like our experience because like this reforestation study that i led with these potentially adulterated resistant hemlocks was you know basically what we did was we planted these um propagated stem cuttings from healthy eastern hemlocks that were lingering in this Adelja devastated forest in New Jersey. Um, we planted them alongside propagated stem cuttings from Adelja susceptible hemlocks at a few different sites up and down the east coast. And, you know, they were kind of left undisturbed to grow for four years, i.e. they were planted and then forgotten about. <laughs> and then I just like <laughs> went back and monitored them for a few seasons and I counted Adelja numbers and measured like a few plant growth metrics mm. and you know it was like my goal was just to collect some data to to get a starting point on like you know in a control in a relatively controlled study do these lingering hemlocks outperform susceptible trees in adelgid infested forests and our you know my work was preliminary and we found like yeah they seem to do better but because that that was a small scale study and it wasn't like perfectly planned or executed everybody is like up in arms about it which mm. is you know i mean yeah like Criticism is completely fair, but I don't think you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. So you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, my God. Totally. Yes, of course. We want that peer review system to work as it's intended to. But at the same time, if you want high levels of confidence, ecology ain't your thing. Get out. <laughs> exactly. Go to physics. Go to chemistry. Like there's better Gosh. ways to get that level of agreeance with models and whatever. Ecology is not it. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm perfectly happy just it you know saying that all of the research that i was involved with and the research on these lingering hemlocks up to the point where i got involved was basically just a starting point from which we can now develop larger scale and or, or and more robust evaluations of these trees um right but you know on top of that there's also there has been like a fair amount of controlled greenhouse work looking at these potentially lingering trees that does show pretty convincingly there is uh, an inherent difference in lingering hemlocks compared to susceptible trees in terms of lingering eastern hemlocks sustain lower adelgid densities compared to susceptible trees and they also have shown that lingering eastern hemlocks that we found in you know new jersey pennsylvania connecticut they have significantly different foliar terpene concentrations compared mm. to yeah, compared to those of susceptible trees. And these were those studies were done on propagated stem cuttings that were grown under identical conditions for two years. So, you know, it's pretty convincing, yeah. I think. Yeah, no, I mean, again, all of this has to come together to, to create the story that is whatever reality is, um, mm. you know, and, and sometimes that takes decades. But coming back to this idea of resistance, you've hinted at it a few times is like finding these trees, taking cuttings. Like, is that really how it goes down is... 
someone or a group of people go out, they find trees in areas that have already been devastated that aren't as devastated, and then you start propagating that material, and that gives you sort of the source stock to start asking questions and testing things? Yeah, that's it, that's basically it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was triage like, level. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Nice. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, that was part of the conference that we did today. It was focused on developing a, a more official lingering tree search and identification protocol for Eastern Hemlock. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but up to now, the work has basically looked like we've, well, I guess I can give you a specific example of how this all started, at least for the lab I was involved with, Dr. Evan Pricer's lab at University of Rhode Island, I should say. Um, back in the early 2000s, they sent out a brochure, basically asked people to report instances of healthy eastern hemlocks they find lingering in indulgent, devastated forests. And the trees that we were looking for had to be mature or you know, around 30 feet tall. They had to have uh, deep green foliage with little to no adelgid at the needle base. And they had to be in a natural setting, like a forest stand, mm-hmm. so not treated with insecticide, that kind of thing, and surrounded by dead trees. Um, so yeah, we sent we sent those out, and we had responses from groups like the New Jersey Department of Agriculture, Pennsylvania Bureau of Forestry, of people who had been working in the field for decades monitoring hemlocks. Um, and so, you know, they had spent the time in the field and kept track of these trees, and they were they were the ones who were originally reporting, you know, like weirdly healthy trees that were surrounded by, you know, snags and dead trees and things like that. And so we just kind of lifted that from them and just kept it going, yeah. just going out into these like natural hemlock stands looking for surviving trees um, where the rest had been killed by adelgid. And in total, I think we found we found around 150 lingering hemlocks. Wow. Yeah. Across like three different states. So. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that, I mean, that's encouraging. That's 150 trees that somehow made it through the initial onslaught. And I mean, to, to come back to what we were saying earlier in the conversation, when you find stands that have been hit, I mean, it they, it is palpable. It's oh, terrifying yeah. how quickly a tree of some of those sizes can die. And so when one's lingering, it's you can pick it out of a crowd pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one argument, at least in my region, you know, in, in the Northeast against these lingering hemlocks having any resistance is that it, you know, there's a climate factor where, like I was saying earlier, you know, the, the winter here is cold enough to keep the adelgid population low enough so that the hemlocks here don't succumb. But I always default to these greenhouse studies, you know, where we evaluated adelgid densities and needle terpene chemistry right. on branches from lingering and susceptible trees and even when you remove the potential for environmental noise, these lingering trees have, you know, something different going on that helps them. So Yeah. So let's dig in a little bit on terms of like what you were doing for the particular chapter of research on this subject. What was your approach? I mean, you mentioned greenhouse studies. I mean, you're you're bringing the adelgid in or are they already on some of the stuff? How did you kind of look at this in a, in a more controlled setting? Yeah, the greenhouse studies, um, they they started before I joined the lab, but basically, um, there, there were, there were, um, five different sites across Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey that the lab started with where there were these lingering Eastern hemlocks and they went out and they, um, propagated stem cuttings from those trees. Um, and then, you know, the successfully rooted cuttings, um, they potted those cuttings up alongside seedlings from adelgid susceptible hemlocks that were that were randomly selected from a forest in western Massachusetts. And mm. so, 
you know, those were grown under identical conditions in a greenhouse for a month. And then the way that we typically inoculated those trees um, at URI for adelgid studies was taking uh, an adelgid infested branch from uh, we had sources of infested trees in a common garden that we monitored year to year to make sure adelgid densities were consistently high so we could use them for experimentation. So we would just snip a branch from that, put it in, in cold water to you know keep the adelgid and branch alive, and then basically tie it to the to the greenhouse trees. Extremely simple stuff, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, then the adelgid um, uh, uh, the crawlers would hatch and move on to the branches of the greenhouse trees and and they would infest them and then we would monitor them. So that's that's kind of the protocol. Yeah. Um, yeah. And did you find that, you know, you said it can kill a big tree in as little as three years. I, I would imagine a small tree is even more susceptible, less biomass, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's a good question. And I actually don't know the answer to that. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I mean, I know that um, Adelgid, like there's some research that's shown that Adelgid is sort of like an equal opportunity attacker, you know, like it, it, it doesn't discriminate between age classes. It'll kill seedlings that are like an inch tall as well as like, you know, 500 year old mature trees. But I'm not sure, if, I'm not sure of a difference in the rate of mortality depending on tree size. That's a good sure. question. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's many unknowns, right? Many more than knowns for sure. But yeah, yeah I, it is it is interesting because, yeah, you look at some of the wood borer literature and like, yeah, there is a size class they tend to go after for obvious reasons. You're living under uh, the bark of a tree. You need enough of it. But mm -hmm. something that just sucks sap from the base of a needle, you could see that being a little more indiscriminate about its uh, destructive power. Yeah, exactly. And what's interesting about how like the mechanism by which hemlock woolly adelgid kills eastern hemlock is... I always, before I got into the literature and like studying these trees and stuff, was that Adelgid just literally sucks the life out of hemlocks, which <laughs> is kind of dramatic and awesome, but also sad. Yeah, but <laughs> painfully true. Yeah, but I guess what it does is it elicits this hypersensitive response in like the small lateral branches of the tree, mm. where you know Adelgid feeding causes hemlock to like plug up its branches because it thinks it's like losing water rapidly, and then the tree just you know, because adelgid infestations are so dense throughout a, a given hemlock's canopy, hemlock plugs up all of its branches and basically kills itself. Oh, no. I so did not realize insane. that was the <laughs> mechanism. But when you hear that, like, you would think a, 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 a tree that's, you know, some of these hemlocks are massive and yeah. could be well over a century old. Like, dude, there's got to be reserves enough to get you through three years of punishment. But when it when you put it in the context of like that's the mechanism, oh, the tree is literally just defending itself to death. Exactly. Oh, that's so tragic. <laughs> it's really sad. Oh, man. So when you think about resistance in that case, and again, I'm, I apologize if this is getting out of your wheelhouse, but what does resistant look like? Like, is it less density? You had mentioned that, and then you mentioned the terpenes. So is it a different form of defense? Like, is there any indication of like what the mechanism of resistance might be? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a critical question. I mean, I think there's somebody uh, who may be starting to investigate some like genetic level or histology kind of area differences to figure out like, you know, a really kind of uh, very refined kind of like mechanism of resistance. I'm not sure. I don't know if there is an, if there's an answer on that, I mean, 11, 11 of the 13 hemlock species are either resistant to mm. or tolerant of adelgid. So there's something going on. Yeah. I don't know what it is. 
Something I also learned that's interesting is that plant resistance to herbivory is broadly considered to be polygenic or like controlled by multiple genes. Hmm. And so sort of like height or eye color in humans, you know, resistance to herbivory can show up in a plant population across a spectrum with hmm. individuals being either totally susceptible to herbivory, tolerant to herbivory, or completely resistant and will it will repel herbivores completely. So it's the jury is kind of still out on whether these eastern hemlocks are completely resistant or tolerant. And I guess I should say that like there are some technical differences that maybe you're familiar with. I'm like still trying to understand so, them because they're so complicated. Yeah. But yeah, I guess you know, tolerance is like um, a plant will be attacked by herbivores but remain healthy and survive, whereas a resistant plant will just completely repel herbivores. Mm. And the, the plant has some kind of impact on the herbivore itself when a plant is resistant. So like western hemlock is adelgid tolerant, so it'll sustain mm. extremely high adelgid densities but remain completely healthy. Um, so... What was your original question? Sorry, I went way Just off course. Just literally <laughs> this. I mean, it's just like, how do do we understand what resistance looks like in hemlocks, really mechanistically speaking? And, you know, I think you're you're highlighting a lot of just how much we don't know is, is, is a lot of people come with a ton of questions to uh, stories like this. And the sad part is, is so often is you're biting off your little chunk of that kind of understanding, but you would need many more years plus a chemistry degree plus a genetics degree you know what i mean to yeah. start really chipping away at what's going on under the surface and and that's just why i think conservation and and really trying to understand how we're going to move forward in this age of like the Colombian exchange and in invasive species is, is like mm. it takes an army we need everyone looking at this from a multiple different angles which again comes back to the literal resistance you're getting on this i don't <laughs> i can't get my head wrapped yeah. around it in any big way if there's any hope of promise someone that cares should at least go I'm okay with it. I don't do it, but I'm okay with it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, I don't know. It's like, it blows my mind. I mean, because even if you don't like the idea of resistance as a potential adelgid management strategy, there's a lot of convincing evidence, you know, like in addition to the greenhouse studies that show that um, the lingering Eastern hemlocks sustain lower adelgid densities compared to susceptible trees, the the needle terpene chemistry stuff I was talking about, so that was done it on two year old greenhouse trees as well. So basically, to cover that real quick, um, we had a collaborator out of UMass Amherst, Joe Elkinton, mm -hmm. who is like an expert level insect maniac. He's an awesome guy, <laughs> and he and a graduate student they. Analyzed, they compared the terpene concentrations in um, twigs of lingering eastern hemlocks to adelgid susceptible hemlocks in the field as well as in a greenhouse setting. And basically in the greenhouse trials, they found that for 20, I think it was 20 different terpenes that they analyzed, the lingering eastern hemlock twigs had significantly higher concentrations of every terpene across multiple sampling, sampling dates. Huh. So it's kind of interesting because you know, that was a controlled study. There's pretty much no environmental noise. And the fact that the, you know, adelgid is, it feeds via stem tissue. So the right. fact that these lingering trees have higher concentrations of, of stem terpenes is pretty convincing. 
to me, but apparently no one else. <laughs> yeah. Well, not no one else, but you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. And those are those lines of evidence that like, even if you don't understand the science, like, okay, there might be something there. It's at least a jumping off point for more research. And and that's, to me, yeah. the most important part here is we can continue doing all of this work in tandem. It's, it might be poorly funded, which all of it generally is in the conservation realm, but man, we need all of it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the conclusion that we came to in this conference today is just that like none of this research on hemlock resistance is perfect, but it's a good starting point, you know, that we can use to develop something more robust to get more reliable results and maybe contribute something to the cause of protecting hemlocks because it's not just protecting hemlocks. It's like these trees create habitat of immense importance to all kinds of animals people as well yeah. so yeah i mean hemlock yeah. groves like i said are a backdrop to my childhood they're some of my favorite places to haunt and yeah. you know that's just a human based perspective but then you look at all of the other organisms in there the soil characteristics it's it's a species that we would be remiss to if we had opportunities to save gosh it would be so shitty to lose <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so. and so yeah i mean we still have all of these long-term monitoring plots with lingering eastern hemlock propagules and adelgid susceptible hemlock propagules, you know, up and down the east coast that I used for my thesis work. And so I think there's going to be some continued monitoring um, on a more regular basis of those trees. And then I think there's going to be some controlled inoculations of those trees with those adelgid infested branch sources, you know, so that we can kind of build on my thesis work and, like I said, just do a more more convincing like robust version of my thesis work so yeah i mean that's great and i feel like if there is a sniff of something interesting there someone's going to pick it up and i think having conversations like this where everyone can hear it you never know who you're going to inspire but on the other side of that is is i i can already hear some people emailing like why are you infesting trees that aren't infested well <laughs> if they're not truly resistant then the the We've just, you know, we got to know, right? But if they are, we can learn something from that. So the cat's out of the bag, unfortunately, with this invasive species, and we best yeah. be learning something from it. So either they're resistant or tolerant, and we can really capitalize on that, or they're not, and we've just been kidding ourselves the whole time. But it'd be nice to have some closure on that subject. Yeah. I mean, the cat is out of the bag, and it has reproduced a million times, and it's <sighs> killing everything in its path. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, I mean... It's, um, yeah, it's just, it needs to be, and I think it is becoming more mainstream, this idea of potential adulted resistance, because there's really nothing to lose, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's pretty low effort, as you can tell <laughs> from a lot of the methods I've described, and it's, there's some prom promising kind of early evidence, um, and yeah, I mean, I'm trying to contribute whatever I can. I don't, you know, I'm not like deep in the forestry world like I was during grad school. Sure. But, um, but yeah, I want to keep it going. And there seems like more interest like this conference today. There's the Nature Conservancy um, is developing a tree species in peril program, which mm. I'm not extremely familiar with, but that was part of our uh, conference today. And it is focused on developing methods for locating lingering trees, a range of different species, including, uh, I think, green and black ash for emerald ash borer resistance. Nice. Eastern hemlocks. Um, oh, American beech as well, because now there's beech leaf disease. It's uh, yes. like incredibly sad. Yeah. 
So yeah, there's growing interest and, you know, more programs are being developed and hopefully it'll, hopefully like we'll all come together, have a very kumbaya moment and save the planet. (laughs) I'd like to think most people are on that side of the coin. Um, The loudest, you know, the worst people always scream the loudest. And that to me is the frustrating part is because those are the ones that unfortunately stick out a lot of the time, but you got to figure for every bad comment you get, there's a bunch of people listening going, Oh yeah. And like you said, the fact that you had a workshop or a conference today about it, that's proof that something's going in that direction. And like the other point you brought up that I really like is it is very minimal effort. I mean, the trees are doing most of the work for us if there is genetic resistance on some, you know, whatever the mechanism is. And then it just comes down to propagating the hell out of plants and who doesn't want to do that. So really it's pursuing, it's kind of a win in a big way, but it doesn't have to come at the cost of anything else as we've discussed a lot in this conversation. (laughs) We can all, and should all be at the table. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, propagating trees is super fun, easy. Uh, it's been around for, you know, forever. <laughs> Since we, we've been around, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, and part of that uh, Tree Species in Peril program that you reminded me of that's really cool is they're developing this app called TreeSnap, mm. which is going to be kind of like, it's sort of like iNaturalist in that it's a citizen science-fueled app where people can be notified when they're in an area that's been devastated by a given pest like EAB or Adelgid. Um, And so if they see any lingering trees of the various Mm. species, they can just take a picture and then researchers at these various institutions will go out and study those trees. So that's encouraging. Yeah. I mean, crowdsource it. Everyone's outside with phones anyway, and we might as well leverage the power of curious folks. It's the the success of INAT is living proof of that. Yeah, exactly. So, Well, Ian, thank you so much for bringing this up and bringing it to our attention. And I think I speak for everyone, hopefully everyone listening, that uh, we support you. We want to see this kind of work moving forward. And like, why not pursue a a, a potential thread there? But, you know, if people want to find out more about you, where do you recommend they go looking? Yeah. um, Well, yeah. Thanks again for having me. Really appreciate it. And I hope that this just helps spread the word on Eastern Hemlock Resistance because, you know, that's what we need. Uh, but yeah, so you can contact me. My email is ian.kinahan at mass.gov. Um, and there's a lot of different groups working on this, and I don't really know what their contact info is. So like, I can just direct people to the various partners. Um, sorry, I probably should have prepared something No, it's okay. <laughs> In fact, most people don't write this stuff down. So if, when we, we finish up here, just send me a list of links. And as always, I will okay. put them in the show notes. And then everyone can save themselves the trouble of trying to remember or listen closely enough and write it down. Just go find it and click on it. Cool. That sounds good. I'll do that. Excellent. Well, again, Ian, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a busy man and uh, it's probably been a very long day for you, but uh, can't thank you enough for bringing this to our attention and bringing a sensible conversation to a really important subject. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your patience, you know, going back and just like fixing up my terrible... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> verbal mishaps Trust me, it's fine. <laughs> and yeah yes no thanks again i really appreciate it i'm a huge fan of your podcast so you know, you. keep it going thanks Much for all your all your hard work i <laughs> well, uh, couldn't do it without people like you so thanks again and uh well in the meantime happy botanizing yeah same to you all right have a good night yeah you too cheers all right incredibly important stuff if you've never been in a grove of eastern hemlocks and seen their ecosystem engineering properties do it while you still can while there's still hemlock groves out there it's a tragedy that 
unfortunately can't be prevented, but with work like those of Ian and others, I hope there is a future for the species. I sincerely do because Eastern hemlock is one of the coolest and best trees out there. That's my biased opinion. But of course, I thank Ian for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, you can find relevant links for everything we talked about in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. I cannot answer any questions related to this with any sufficient detail. So as Ian mentioned, please consider reaching out to him via email if you have any additional questions about this or where and how you can get involved. Otherwise, I thank you all for listening. Once again, consider supporting this podcast because I couldn't be doing it without support. There's a lot of different ways to do that. You can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers, and all of those relevant links can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast as well. Otherwise, hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.